Good morning. The scripture for today will come from the book of Psalm. The first chapter will commence in verse 1 and culminate in verse 6. And it reads, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are spending the summer in the Psalms and all of the ways that the Psalms teach us about how to live in light of the reality of God. Uh, One of the the statements that we are repeating kind of over and over is is one that is, is made by Dallas Willard when he's talking about the Psalms. He says, if you want to know the nature of God, the nature of life, and the nature of faith, then read the Psalms. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who is a a well-known Old Testament scholar, says uh, basically the same things. He says, you know, when you study the Psalms, it's three things. The Psalms are about life. And number two, the Psalms are about life that is sometimes a delight and sometimes not a delight. Sometimes life can can throw a curveball at you, that it can do something unexpected that causes you to stumble or to trip or to feel some pain in one way or another. But then thirdly, he says, the Psalms are about talking to God uncompromisingly in an unadulterated, in sort of this unflinching way about both the delightful times and the undelightful times in life. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 1 and what it has to say about being blessed. And we want to begin with a word of prayer. So I'll invite you to get your, your Bibles out, make sure they're open to Psalm 1 as well as the outline that you find in the announcement sheet and that as an insert. And then let's bow our heads, join our hearts, and ask God to bless us. Father, there are a lot of things that take place in this life. Uh, Some are unseen. uh, Many are unexpected. Uh, A lot of it is inexplicable, indescribable. But the one constant, Father, is your presence. And it is that presence, Father, that is real, that makes all the difference in the world, in the way that we live, in the way our perspective, our emotional life, our attitudes, the strength, Father, that we need to move from day to day to day deeper and deeper into your kingdom. And so what we ask right now, Father, is to take this very ancient, simple poem and to use it, Father, as your words into our heart and mind this morning. So we pray for the eyes to see and the ears to hear in such a way that we are blessed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. By way of introduction, I want to ask just four questions of us. Uh, The first question is this. You know, and as soon as I ask this, there's going to be a face that pops into your mind. Uh, who is the most joy-challenged person you know? 
Don't look up here. <laughs> Don't elbow the person next to you. But who is the most joy-challenged person you know? Do you see a face of someone who always seems like they're living a life that is cursed? That even the smallest of things kind of become big drama. That the cup is always half empty. They're bitter. They're always complaining. They're always saying no. It's not the kind of person you want to spend a lot of time with. Second question. Who in your life always seems to bring this authentic and, and, and genuine attitude of blessedness? And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, kind of the denial of pain in the world. But they, they bring this authentic attitude of blessedness. I mean, you sense it as soon as you go into the room. You know, I, I have a, uh, an elder that sort of embedded in my, my memory for all time. Uh, Ellen and I were attending a church in Abilene, Texas during the early years of our college days in, at, at ACU. And a lot of people say it today, but he was the first one that I heard say it. And you would go up to Dove Orr. It was an elder at the South 11th and Willis Church of Christ in Abilene. And you would say, uh, uh, Brother Orr, Brother Dub, or Dub, how you doing? And he would say, it's going better than I deserve. Now, if you were to ask me, that's a pretty good definition of what it means to be blessed. When you walk into the presence of people who are fully aware of how blessed they are, you sense things just by being in their presence of, of an optimism and a hopefulness for the future. There's generosity. There's, there's this gracious, forgiving spirit about them. They just sort of breathe a, a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness and hopefulness into everyone around them. Some years ago, and, and, and some of you will remember this very well, we had a middle schooler in our church who uh, lost his best friend in a, uh, a drowning, a tragic drowning accident at a birthday party. And as he was going through all of the phases and the steps and the emotions and uh, all the degrees of grief, they got news that his father had a brain tumor that needed to be removed. And this is a very strong family. And, and, a, and a family that, whose eyes are on the future. And, but one morning, uh, or one, one, a part, one of the days uh, thereafter, uh, the weight, the emotional weight, uh, kind of fell on the heart of the mom. And this middle schooler put his arms around his mother and said, God is good to us. It's a middle schooler. Psalm 73, verse 28 says this. The nearness of God is my good. Third question. Where's the happiest place on earth? With all uh, regrets to those who love Disneyland, it's not. I mean, if it was the happiest place in the world, it would be free, right? And it wouldn't have, you know, those long lines. The happiest place, in the way that we're going to define it, the happiest place on the planet are in rooms like this right now. This is the place of blessing. Last question. What if our church was known all over this town, all over this city, south, north, east, west, all of the, the suburbs around us, uh, the, the greater Bear County metropolitan area of San Antonio? 
What if our church and, and churches like us were known all over town to be full of joyful, happy people because they recognized how authentically and genuinely blessed they were? Would that make a difference in the way that we share the gospel and love people and change the world? When, when people come to our assemblies and our events, are they struck by a sense of blessedness that characterizes the way that we sing, the way we sit with each other, the way that we make that joyful noise to God, the, 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 the sober-mindedness of, of what it is we do when we take of that bread and that, that juice, the fruit of the vine. Our attentiveness to the Word of God, even if it's poetry like the Psalms. A place where it's high peace and low anxiety. That there's buoyancy rather than floundering. There's calm rather than agitation. People are kind to one another rather than harsh. They're lavish rather than stingy. They're open-handed rather than closed and tight-fisted. They build each other up and all the ones around them rather than tear them down. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to the blessings of God, I believe this with all of my heart, that churches should overflow with a tangible sense of blessedness that wrecks and destroys, like a wrecking ball, the cynicism of our age. And our age is cynical. And truth be told, a lot of us are cynical. We're never going to cure cancer. There's never going to be an end to poverty. We're not going to cure racism, and at some point we're all going to die. And my answer is, there is a cure, and it's called the resurrection of Jesus. And there is a cure to death, and there is a cure to racism, and to cancer, and every other kind of sickness, and and injustice, and poverty, and it's called God's heaven. That is the ultimate absolute cure. And we see what life looks like when it's lived in the presence of God in such a way that everything, that everything that we do and say and think and react and feel and emote and evoke all finds itself embedded and couched in the resurrection and the reality of heaven and God's presence himself, which David te- or the psalmist tells us is our good. And so in Psalm 1, we see a couple of things. We see that living a blessed life is possible. That there's a definition of blessedness, not maybe a complete one, but a really good one that's found in this psalm, what it means to be blessed, and then how the blessed live. Let's start with that first one. Blessedness is possible. It's possible. The Bible says in both the Old and New Testaments, That life where you sense a profound and deep blessedness everywhere you go, regardless of what is thrown at you, is possible. It doesn't mean sort of this giddy denial of of anything bad. Again, it's couched and embedded in God's future. But the psalm begins with these words. Blessed is the person, the one, the man, the woman. Blessed is the one. It's said over and over and over again. The blessed life is possible. Look at Psalm 2. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Psalm 40, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Psalm 41, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, and you get the idea. The question, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? I think that a lot of us would have to admit deep down that we have a struggle with that. And part of it is it, it, it's, a, it's a bit couched in the culture that we live in. We do live in Western culture that is just sort of, you know, filled with angst and, and filled with, a, you know, a, a healthy dose of cynicism. And part of it is it has to do with somehow the age of enlightenment did not deliver on all the promises. A couple of hundred years ago, we had this idea as human beings. And it wasn't that it was a bad idea, it just... We promised too much with it. The idea was you could, you could have this contraption, this box, and you could take data, you could take facts, and you could put them in that box, crank on the handle, and out would come truth, and out would come wisdom. And then all we needed were the right kind of facts, the right kind of data, a little bit of time, and we would be able to conquer and cure everything. But alas, we still struggle with some of the same things. And we had to realize and sometimes we fight it. It's so much easier to be able to build a better microwave or a better toaster than it is to build a better human heart. And because the modern age of enlightenment didn't deliver on the way, ways that it had promised, we then entered into postmodernism, which was trying to look again at all things spiritual, and, and now we're even kind of post-postmodern. You know, there was a time when we used to just assume that childhood was going to be a happy time. We assumed that it would just be a happy time. And, you know, those first 12, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of your life were going to be happy, happy, happy. And then sometime around maybe middle school or high school or college or marriage or whatever, you begin to see that there are bumps on the road and that life sometimes has liabilities and not just assets. And so we were beginning life thinking that, yeah, happiness is the thing to expect. It's the thing to count on, only to find later on that we're going to struggle and find so many people that are chasing after happiness. You know, the National Institute of Health recently, I mean in the last couple of years, says that the age of onset for phobias now between the ages of 7 and 14. Seven-year-old kids. Phobias. By adulthood, we're not always sure that happiness is the given. There's this quote by Charlotte Bronte, wrote Jane Eyre. She wrote, Life is so constructed that the event does not, cannot, will not match the expectation. And we, we believe that to be true. I mean, there's this fantasy world, the, the, the dream world, the expectations that are all flowered and all silk and all wonderful colors. And we expect life to just sort of fit into the pattern of our expectations and our fantasy and our dreams, only to, fall that they fall, only to find that they fall short time 
and time and time again. And so part of that cynicism of our own age is that life never lives up to the dream, never lives up to the expectation, never lives up to the promise. The more you chase happiness, what does it do? Put on his tennis shoes and run further down the road. But what if, for a second, all eyes up here, what if, as the Bible teaches and promises, your life in Christ can surpass your wildest dreams? So what is this blessedness? What is this blessedness? A lot of translations use the word happy. They use the word happiness to define the, he the Hebrew word ashray. There's some merit there. Happy is not nearly a big enough word, but it, it, it's sort of okay. It's just not complete. And a lot of times when we think about happiness and the way we define happiness as Americans living in the 21st century, it's tied up to getting all the externals right. That's why happiness is so elusive. You're not in control of those externals. Sometimes it feels that the externals are in charge of us, in control of us. And the more you chase that happiness, the farther it seems to be. The reason for that is that we're very, very good at taking something that's pretty good, a good thing, in and of itself a good thing, and we turn it into an ultimate thing. And in the end, it disappoints us. Let's allow David's psalm for just a minute to define what it means to be blessed. Three things very quickly. It's a life of delight. It's a life of delight. To delight in something is to take it all in with contentment and joy and satisfaction. To delight in something is to taste it and to, and to want more. I mean, I never delighted as a kid growing up in eating liver and onions. But mom and dad would make that homemade ice cream, delighted. Would always, is, is, does anybody ever satisfied with one bowl of vanilla homemade ice cream? I, that's the delight in it. In verse 2, the psalmist says, delight, his delight, this man, this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The word law is the word Torah. It's not really rules or laws in, in the sense of regulations as it is the rule of life. It's the word Torah, which is, means not law, but teaching. And Torah is about what God teaches about life and what he teaches and reveals about himself. It's having a knowledge of life that makes sense of life. There's a gladness and a thankfulness for the words of God that reveal how and why things are the way they are and what it means to be a human being. That there is a God. That the, that the universe is not cold and it's not empty. And it's not hostile to human beings, but there is a God who created everything and loves His creatures and what it means to trust Him. And what it means for Him to be faithful to all of His promises, even in those dark tunnels, and what it means to be His child. This psalmist is delighting in the Word of God because it is helping him to make sense of the world as it is. But not only is it a delight, but it is also a life of rootedness, which means that the blessed life is a steady life. In verse 3, the psalmist says, 
A person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The blessed life is one that is rooted deeply and not superficially, not shallow. I mean, what are roots when you think about it? The roots of a tree are what the tree uses to be able to, to not just get it, its nutrients and to get the, all of the stuff it needs to become a, whatever kind of tree it is. But it's also the way that it grips the earth and keeps steady with all of the strength of the nutrients and all that the ground and the soil has supplied to it and the water, the streams of water underneath have supplied to it, it is able to withstand the blessed life is not always a life without challenges. Think about what Jesus said about the blessed life. Blessed are those who are poor in the spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting after some kind of righteousness. What the psalmist is saying about this tree is that it goes through the seasons of life. It goes through different seasons. But because of its rootedness, because of where it has decided to grip and, and, and to form as a foundation its life is God, because of its rootedness, it produces its fruit and it doesn't wither regardless of what it is that it faces. Which means in a very practical way, church, that even in the worst of circumstances, you can sense the fact that you are a blessed person. It doesn't mean that you deny it or make little of it, the pain that comes in life. But to be blessed means I recognize all that I'm going through in light of God's presence and God's future. And this is what Peter would say to the church in Rome. He would say, you know, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The third thing that it defines as blessedness is that it's a watched over life. And the word father doesn't show up there. The word uh, for father, ava, does not show up in the text. But it's a description of what a loving father does. Verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. You know, I've got this little granddaughter that I, I just adore. Man, I am like a hawk over her. I watch everything that she does. I watch where she goes. I'm looking down the road. I'm looking around. God watches over the way of the righteous. Blessedness. Blessedness is taking seriously, not just intellectually. It's taking seriously, not just theologically, the reality of God's presence, that God is making himself presently available to us in whatever circumstance, on whatever day, and in whatever environment we find ourselves. That's God. You know, all of our children here, have, have theories on what it means to be a father. My own kids have theories. They have an intellectual idea of what it means to have a father. All, all of the pluses, all of, all of the good stuff, you know, and, and all, all of the, you know, it's all 
theory and it's all based on you know what they want but you know what is better than a theoretical dad a real one who's who's there and what this psalmist is telling us is that a person who is blessed knows that God himself is making himself available that even in those rough moments in life, you know, a lot of times we think that when we're in trouble, our parents are upset with us, especially our father, and they're not talking to us, and so on and so forth. But in, in healthy, loving families, when a kiddo is in trouble, you have more of the eyes of the father on you than ever before. The Lord watches over the righteous. Last thing, and we're done. Blessedness is a decision. When you look at verse 1, blessed is the one who does not walk, who does not uh, stand, and does not sit in the company of mockers. There's all of these things that he's deciding he is not going to do or he is going to do. He's not going to stand or to walk or to sit with, with the way of the wicked and the seat of the scoffers and the, the way of sinners. That, that stepping has to do that walking, has, or that walking has to do with behavior. Uh, the standing has to do with the intellect. And the, sit, the sitting has to do you know, who you are sit, seating, uh, seated, I can't even speak, seated with are the people that you belong to. You sit with your family. You sit with your church. You sit with your team. And blessedness is a decision that our behavior and our intellect and our identity will all reflect the revelation of God to man. This blessed life. Is it possible? Is it possible that regardless of what happens to us, we can have a steady life? That regardless of the pain, there's a, a buoyancy, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a poise that we have regardless of what comes at us. Is there a way that we can live this life rooted into the stream of God himself in such a way that everywhere we go, we feel the available reality of God's presence at all times. It is. And the reason that it's possible is that there was one who forfeited the delight. But instead, as the prophet Isaiah says, he was despised and rejected by man. And there was one who uprooted himself from his relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit to become like a root out on dry ground. And there was a time when this one was not watched over, but he suffered the forsakenness of the Father on the cross. My Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason that he forfeited the delight and became uprooted and lost that presence of God is so that we would never, ever, ever in a million, billion years, which is just the first day of eternity, ever lose it. And that's what this psalm promises. That this kind of life is available, and not only is it available, it's possible, and not only is it possible, but it's really the only way to live. And this morning, we're going to sing a song right now. And if you have come to that place in your life where you're just, you're just tired of, of feeling alone, 
and feeling like you're, you're on your own and, and feeling like everything that you touch somehow crashes or wrecks or blows up in your face? Maybe it's time that you allow God to have the management of the affairs of your life. And what that means is that there comes a point in which you have to say, you know, I'm not going to be king anymore. He's, he's king. Jesus is going to be Lord. The biggest truth of my life is that Jesus is Lord. And not only that, but I'm going to live out the ramifications of that decision by turning my life around. I, the decisions I was making to walk and to sit and to stand over here is going to walk and to sit and to stand in the presence of God and God's people and to be right there in the middle of the stream of God's will for my life. And then to be baptized, committing yourself to God, aligning your life up with the will of God, sins being washed away, to receive God's Spirit in such a way that the blessedness becomes a reality for you. If that sounds good to you this morning, we're going to have some of these shepherds down here at the front to talk to you about how to make that happen today. We want you to come down and talk to them while the rest of us stand and sing. Created me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit.